got past the cool point and way into the awkward point, uh, the, the longer it goes on. Hey, um, welcome guys. Good morning to Discover Community Church. I'm so glad to see you guys out there. You out there online, our friends in uh, Tanzania, Pastor Paphras and your congregation, welcome you guys. Um, some new faces that I've, hopefully I've at least had a chance to say hi to you before uh, the service today, but if I haven't, please catch me afterwards. We want to get to know you. We want to be, the word community is in our name on purpose. We feel like we want this to be a family. We want, we don't want to be a big giant church where you don't know anybody. We want to know everybody. So it matters to us. So take a little bit of time. Um, I'm going to get right into the message. We are we're in the Gospel of Mark. Now, I need to, I feel like I need to give a little explanation, not necessarily a disclaimer, but an explanation um, to those families that are new and maybe haven't been with us for a while, or actually even if it's been a couple weeks. We are, we teach uh, in an expository way. And what that means is that we take Scripture and really jump into it. So you get a lot of Scripture here. If you don't like Scripture, this may not be the church for you. Um, and, but talk to me. I want to know why you don't like Scripture. Um, no pressure. Um, but we, we use a lot of Scripture. And what we do is, is, in my heart, how many of you know that Christianity and the Bible can be so confusing? And I think mankind has made it confusing. The things that the Bible lays out, very straightforward, sometimes it just gets interpreted and twisted and and, and taught in different ways, and it just makes it confusing. And things that are confusing are hard to be excited about. Anybody like, like the hardest subject in school? Was that the one you're most excited about? Rarely. Some, some of you, yeah, that was your most exciting subject, uh, the challenging ones. But I like to take Scripture, and I like to make it real, because the Bible is real. It is the inspired, true, authentic Word of God. And we need to understand it like that. There are things in the Bible, yes, that are metaphors. There are things in the Bible that are poetry. But there are some that are, that are pure um, narrative, and it's telling a story. And it's explaining what happened. And it's not just a collection of really cool made-up stories. It is the true Word of God. And the thing that I love about it is the deeper you go into Scripture the more you can support it with historical facts, outside sources, things that verify what's in Scripture. And so I'm not one of those pastors who's going to tell you what you need to think about life and the things that come at you. I'm going to let Scripture do that because there's no one better than the Holy Spirit in telling you how to live your life. But here's my job as a pastor, to make the Word of God plain and to teach it just like Scripture says. So that's what I do. So there's a lot of scripture. There'll be a lot of teaching here. And in the end, I want to tie it up and let you know that there is a point to all this and give you the point. And so that's what we try to do. So we're in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is one of four Gospels. And the Gospel of Mark, uh, we chose to go through it chapter by chapter by chapter. And the reason that this was on my heart is because all four Gospels teach about character, uh, the character and aspects of Jesus Christ from different standpoints. Matthew, for example, is very much into the messiahship, the kingship of Jesus, and most of his teachings from the very beginning, talking about the lineage of Jesus, tracing it back to David, is very much about he is the promised messiah. He is the king, and here's his royal lineage. That is Matthew's focus. Mark very much focuses on the servanthood, the servant aspects of Jesus Christ, what he came to do was to serve, was to give himself up. And that is a hard concept for a lot of us today to grasp. It was even harder for people back in those days to grasp. So we look at the scripture that's taught and we look at it in context of the time that it was taught and what it really would have meant to them. And I think it becomes even more meaningful to us. So the series is called Jesus the Servant Messiah. The idea is, is talking about the things and the teachings of Jesus Christ from that servanthood aspects, it talks a lot about miracles. And, and if you missed anybody, any of the previous messages, by the way, you can go back to our archives and check them out right through our website, or you can go to our YouTube channel and check them out there. Um, but the point is not to call attention to Jesus, the doer of miracles. It's to call attention 
to the source of that power that enables Jesus as he walks on the earth in his human form to perform those miracles. And then, of course, the point beyond that is that you have that Holy Spirit in you. So all those things that we see Jesus doing in Scripture, we can do through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, and that enables us to get through this life in the best way that we can, in the most honoring way to God possible. So that's why we're in Mark. I want to do a quick recap. We don't have time to go all the way back and recap all this, but I want to tell you where we are. So we're, we're following Jesus and his disciples as they travel around um, the Galilee region, and they're entering what, what we would call Passion Week. Passion Week is that last week of the life of Christ on earth before the crucifixion. And there's a lot that goes on. But leading up to that, he was traveling around the Galilee with his disciples. They were following him around. He was teaching. He was doing miracles. He was doing all these things. They have left the area that's called Perea. It's kind of a, of a region that's sort of east of the, of the Jordan River. The Jordan basically divides Israel in half east-west, more or less. Um, and he's traveling across there, and he's heading towards Jerusalem. It's a long, grueling uphill climb. He goes through Jericho. Um, some miracles happen then, some healing, some incredible teaching um, that Jesus has for all of us there, so I urge you to go back. Um, but they're nearing Jerusalem. That's his final destination. They're nearing Jerusalem, and then so it's only been... I think it's been four weeks ago, but it seems like a million years ago. Um, we were in the chapter where Jesus and his disciples had made it to Jerusalem, and fulfilling prophecy, Jesus enters Jerusalem on the back of a colt, okay? Most of us have heard that story at one point or another, whether in depth or just surface, but we, we kind of know that story, right? And the crowd is shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna to God in the highest. Mark 11, verses 9 and 10 is kind of where we left off. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. We've all probably heard that word Hosanna, especially around Christmas. You hear him shouting that. But that word Hosanna means at its root, in the Hebrew root, and it's an ancient word, but it means save us. It means save us. So these people who are laying down their coats, they're laying down palm branches for, for the cult to arrive on and for Jesus to come in on, um, they're, they're literally just praising him and just shouting out, save us. I love thinking about that crowd chanting that. He rides in. The triumphal entry, as it's called, comes into Jerusalem. And then Jesus looks around. Read scripture. Uh, read that chapter 11 if you want a, more information on it. But he looks around, and then much to the confusion of the crowd, who's probably expecting something amazing to happen, Jesus leaves. He and his disciples just turn around and they leave, Mark eleven eleven. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple area. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12, since it was already late. How unusual is it? If you're writing a story, this is one of the reasons why we know that Scripture is so authentic. If you're writing a story about the Savior, the Messiah, he's coming, he's doing the triumphal entry into his final destination, Jerusalem, would you have him arrive just before closing time. He shows up. The crowd is chanting. He looks around and goes, well, it's late. Everybody's leaving. Let's just go home. Let's do this again tomorrow. But that's exactly what happens. Mark's gospel is the only one actually that records the events happening that way. The other ones have Jesus getting right into business, which is what we'll talk about here today. But the next morning, before we get to where the scripture that we start with today, the very next morning, Jesus gets up, his disciples get up, and they're getting ready to head back into Jerusalem to begin their day of ministry. And Jesus sees a fig tree. Anybody ever heard a teaching on Jesus cursing the fig tree? It sounds so weird, doesn't it? Jesus Christ, this loving Savior, and he curses a tree. Let's talk about it for a second. Mark eleven thirteen, seeing from a distance a fig tree in leaf... He went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. 
And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. Okay, he sees a fig tree. It's, it's all leafed out. He's hungry. He's going to go see if he can get some figs for breakfast. He goes over there, and there's no figs on it. And it says, Scripture says, for it's not the season for figs. It would be kind of hard to blame him for, or blame the tree for not having figs because it's not fig season. But Jesus curses it, Mark eleven fourteen, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. So that's where we left off. But remember, here's the lesson. The fig tree is a metaphor for Israel, the nation of Israel and Jerusalem in particular in that context. Jesus isn't cursing the fig tree because it doesn't have fruit. He's cursing the fig tree because it's promising to have fruit. It looks like it should have fruit. It's beckoning to him like it should have fruit, but there's no fruit. And that's why, that's exactly why he is cursing the fig tree. It's got the looks of fruit, it's got the promise of fruit, but no actual fruit. And remember, that's a metaphor for Israel and for Jerusalem in particular. Keep that kind of in mind as we go through the section today. So now, fast forward, we're here today, Mark eleven fifteen 15 through 33. We're going to finish out chapter 11 today. So if you have your Bible, that's where we are. I use the NASB, New American Standard Bible. Um, that's just the one I love to study from. If you have a different translation, it might read a little bit differently. Um, but that's where we are. So Mark eleven fifteen, very first one here for today. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple area and began to drive out those who were selling and buying on the temple grounds. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Remember, this is not the first time that Jesus has done that. Almost exactly three years earlier when he was very first uh, beginning his ministry, it was right after the wedding in Cana, you know, the one where he turns water into wine? It was right after that when he came down to Jerusalem and did the very same thing. John 2, 13 to 15 says that. I'll just read some of these to you. John chapter 2, 13 to 15 says, the pa- and this is back again three years earlier when Jesus did it the first time. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And within the temple grounds, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. What did Jesus do? I love this part. Verse 15, and he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. That was three years before, before anybody knew who Jesus was. Now, here's a picture of the temple and the courts in the times of Jesus. Now, I don't know how well you can see that. This actually um, is, if you go to Israel, they have a museum, and the museum is all a fully-scale model of what Jerusalem was like in the time of Jesus. So I hope, can everybody see that? I don't know if it's kind of at the right angle. Um, Again, this is, so this is a model. This is the temple itself. This is the part where the Holy of Holies is. That's where they believe that the Spirit of God resided. And then you have this outer court, and then you have even more outer courts. This area, this inner court, is called the Court of Women. Only Jews could enter through these gold doors on the sides and enter this area. You had to be a Jew to even get into that part. Now, these outer parts are something different. Vendors would come in, and they would sell, um, they would sell doves. They would, excuse me, they would sell sheep. They would sell goats. In some cases, they would even sell flour. They were basically doing business in there. Only Gentile, or Gentiles could only get into the outer courts. So if you weren't a Jew, you weren't allowed into this inner part that you see within those inner walls. I'll show you a bigger out picture in a little bit here. But that's where they were doing business. That's where we are as Jesus goes in and he kicks over the tables and drives them out. Now, the reason that they did business inside those outer courts there was for convenience. It actually wasn't a bad thing that they were doing business there, and we'll talk about it in a second. They were doing it for convenience of the pilgrims who would travel from all over to come into Jerusalem for Passover. 
And they would come into Passover, and they would have to do a couple things while they were there. They would have to pay their temple tax, and then they would come and they would offer sacrifice in the temple, sacrifice for atonement for their sins, or for various reasons they would offer sacrifice. But the sacrifices per Levitical law, the sacrifices had to be perfect. You couldn't offer the Lord, look, I've had this, I've got this dove, or I've got this lamb, and we've been traveling on foot hundreds of miles to get here, so the lamb's a little beat up, and the dove's maybe got a broken wing, but it's all we have, so let's offer. You wouldn't even consider offering something less than perfection to the Lord to atone for your sins. The law of Moses actually laid out very clearly what the proper atonement is, and if you want to get more on this, read Leviticus. It talks about it. But this is, is Mosaic law talking about the exact way to do this. And the Bible lays it out. It was God-ordained. But just like everything else, the establishment, the religious establishment, found a way to twist it and in some ways to profit from it. That's where the problem lies. But let's look at Leviticus really quick here. Um, I'll read it to you, but it's Leviticus 5, 5 through 7. And then I'm just going to jump to verse 11 here. I'll read it, though. So it shall be when, when he becomes guilty of one of these things. They just laid out a whole list of, of sins that, and offenses against God that you could atone for. That he shall confess that in which he has sinned. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed. A female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that in which he has sinned, two turtle doves or two young doves, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. He's saying if you can't afford a lamb, which is much more expensive, here's another option for you. And then verse 11, but if, this, but if his means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young doves, then his offering... For that which he has sinned, he shall bring a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. He shall not put oil on it or place incense on it, for it's a sin offering. Very clearly lays out what the procedures are. You have sinned. You're offering atonement in the temple for your sins. This is how you do it. And if you can't afford this, we'll give you this option. If you can't afford that option, we'll give you this option. So it was very, very straightforward. Here's the problem, though. In Scripture, you see um, he specifically calls out those who are selling doves because there were people selling lambs and goats there, too. But Jesus specifically targets those who were selling doves. And the reason for that is because doves, the sale of doves, was targeted towards those who were very little means. They couldn't afford a lamb. They couldn't afford anything else. They could barely probably scratch together to pay for the dove. And they were being targeted by the vendors who were working there. Now, some of them were priests selling them themselves. Some of them were vendors who were authorized and gave a little kickback to the priests to sell there in the temple. The problem is they sold them at an exorbitant price, an exorbitant price. And if you were a pilgrim who had traveled who knows how far on foot to get there to offer atonement for your sins, and you got there you're not going to say, that's ah, a little too high. I think I'll order it on Amazon and we'll come back next week. You would, you would pay whatever they were charging because you were there, you'd made the trip, and you had to do it. You weren't going to turn around and go home without doing the, an offering there. Now, the money changers were another story entirely, and this is kind of where we get to the crux of what's going on here. Every Jew, in addition to the sacrifice that they would offer at the temple, they were required to pay a temple tax, every Jew. And you were required to pay that every year. And it was the same whether you were poor or whether you were rich. It was half a shekel. Half a shekel is not an awful lot. It's about two days' wages typically in that time. In today's money, it would be somewhere between 75 and 100 bucks. So it's not outrageous, but if you were poor and barely had anything, that would be a lot. Now, it gets even more, gets even more twisted than that. The temple tax and any lambs or doves or anything that you bought while you were there had to be paid for in shekels, okay? The shekels were the, 
were the uh, Jewish money at the time that had to be paid for in shekels. Here's the problem, though. Shekels were not the official money of the land, okay? The Romans were the ones who were in charge, and shekels, you can trade amongst yourselves with shekels, but that's not official money. So you can't buy anything else. You can't pay road tolls. You can't do anything with shekels. So you had to have either a Roman denarius or a Greek drachma. That was the only official money that you could do. (coughs) So these people, these pilgrims coming in from, from wherever they came from would have drachma or denarius with them. When they arrived, they would find very quickly, you can only purchase the things you need with with um, um, shekels. So what do you do? You exchange it. That's why they're called money changers there in the temple. You would exchange it. The problem is it wasn't a one-for-one exchange. They were charging around 12 to 15% interest in the exchange rate. So you could exchange your money for the money that you had to buy your sacrifices with but pay an extra 12 to 15% in the process of exchanging your money. It was... A racket. Are you starting to see the problem here? These people are being obedient. They're coming in. They have very little to give anyway, and they're paying, and they're being taken advantage of by the priests, the very people who are supposed to be there caring for them. And Jesus has a problem with that. It's not that they're doing business. It's the way they were doing it. Mark eleven sixteen, the very next verse, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple grounds. Now, that can seem kind of as a little throwaway scripture, but here's what's happening is that, um, in fact, let's show it right here. Let's show that outer picture. This is a bigger picture. This is what the whole temple grounds looked like. It was built by Herod, by the way. In fact, in the time of Jesus, it was still under construction before it got destroyed, not, not very much later. But out here is Jerusalem itself, and then here is the temple. You would have these entry gates, Okay, and you would enter into the temple grounds itself to do business. The problem is, is that it had become, the temple had become so profane, so it wasn't even holy or special anymore. People were coming from the outer regions, and they were taking a shortcut through the temple grounds to get into the rest of Jerusalem to do business or to go see friends, whatever they were doing through there. They were just cutting right through not keeping it holy. There was nothing special about it. People are just like taking a shortcut through. Jews, Gentiles alike, people were just cutting through. And Jesus says this and says, no, you are not going to. It'd be like people just walking through the church on their way to the bike path, you know, come rolling through here with a bike. Like, no, (laughs) this is a special place. You're not to do that. And Jesus cuts that out and says, no, you're not doing that. Now, Matthew's gospel, because all the gospels talk about this, Matthew's gospel adds a little context to what Jesus teaches on next. And I'm going to share this with you because it makes more sense what he's about to say and what he's about to do. So remember, the last thing that he did was just he wouldn't allow anyone to cut through the temple grounds. And then Matthew 21, 14 to 46 says this, And those who were blind and those who limped came to him in the temple area, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were thrilled, right? They became indignant. We have to put an end to this. He's healing people and the children are chanting to him. We can't have that. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read from the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. He's quoting Psalm 8-2 directly when he says that. So that's the, <clears throat> that's the fill in the gaps of what happened here from Matthew. Mark goes right into the next thing. And, and what we see here is there's no more time for subtlety. Jesus is like, okay, I'm, I'm being challenged by the Pharisees, I'm being challenged by the priests and by the scribes, and it's right here in public. There's no time to be subtle anymore. So he launches right in to teaching, and he quotes prophecy from Isaiah and Jeremiah. Mark eleven seventeen. Jesus says, and, and he began to teach and say to them, 
Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Again, he's quoting from Isaiah, um, Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. This is the prophet Isaiah talking about what the temple is going to be like. What a welcoming place. What a holy place. What a special place that the temple was going to be. And Isaiah says this, again, 56, 6 and 7. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to attend to his service and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath so as not to profane it and holds firmly to my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. This is what Isaiah was saying. This is what the temple is going to be. There's no mistaking there. He's talking specifically about the temple and the temple mount right there. But the priests and the scribes were profiting from extortion from the people. These people who were coming because Isaiah prophesied, because the Lord ordained it would be a house of prayer for all peoples, they're profiting from it. And now Jesus is calling them out directly. He's calling, there's, again, there's no confusion what Jesus is doing. And they can't, they can't ignore it any longer. They can't just walk away and pretend they didn't hear him. It's right there in the, in the holiest place in all of Israel, right there at the temple, and, and he's calling them out. So they have to do something. Mark eleven eighteen, and the chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to put him to death, for they were afraid of him because all the crowd was astonished at his teachings. That word astonished just means that they were just, soaking it in. They were just amazed by it, the things that Jesus was saying, and they couldn't have it anymore. So end of day, Mark eleven nineteen, and whenever evening came, they would leave the city. This is just a side note thing. Jesus knows that, again, they're in the middle of this passion week that we call it. He knows his time is drawing short, so his habit now for the rest of his days will be to enter Jerusalem in the morning. He stays until, until the last person leaves. He stays all day and then they leave. So this is what's happening here. They stay all day. He teaches all day. And then he leaves, coming back then the following day. The next day, they're leaving. They're heading back into Jerusalem, and they walk by this sickly fig tree, this fig tree that had been cursed and is starting to wither, right? Mark 11, 20, 21, as they were passing by in the morning, and remember the disciples saw him curse it before, and they just said, huh, that's weird, but didn't ask anything about it. So here's where he's going to tell them. Mark 11, 20, 21. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter, always the spokesman for the group, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Peter's an expert at stating the obvious. <coughs> now, Jesus' response to that doesn't seem to make sense if you just do a cursory reading. This is why reading Scripture is super important, but studying it, looking at it in context, is so much more meaningful for us. So again, remember, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. The very next thing, Mark 11, 22, 23, Jesus answers them and says this, And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Can you imagine? Think about it. You're one of the disciples. And Peter points out, hey, look, that fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answers with this. What would you be thinking? Yeah. What's, what's the point? If it were me, I'd go, clearly I'm not smart enough to talk to you, Jesus. And I would just back away quietly. But what's the point of it? Here's the point. Here's the point. The fig tree was not doing what it was meant to do. It was promising through the leaves that it was going to bear fruit, that it was going to feed the hungry, that it was there for its intended purpose. But it had all the looks, but none of the fruit. And what Jesus is pointing out here is that the temple, the temple of God, the one that they had just visited, will no longer be suitable for its intended use. 
It will no longer be the vessel where God's spirit is contained. We have to follow along in teaching to see what he's talking about even further. Jeremiah warned them of that very thing centuries before. Again, this is where we get that den of robbers. Listen to this, Jeremiah 7, 3 to 11. And this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. Remember, hundreds of years before Jesus, what the God of Israel says, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He repeats it three times, it's for emphasis. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a person and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor follow other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Verse 8, Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, Swear falsely, offer sacrifices to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known. Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are saved, so that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. That explains Jesus' anger. And if you were with us when we taught last in Mark a few weeks ago, we see when Jesus goes in and he turns around and leaves after his triumphal entry, it's not just, well, they're closed, and he leaves. He's melancholy. He's looking around at the temple saying, this is not the temple I knew. This is not the temple that we were promised by Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the prophets. This is not what the temple was meant to be. It's been profaned. It's no longer even holy. It's just a place. And he's having these kind of melancholy feelings about it. But what it comes down to is never again will the temple be the sole way to commune with God. It will no longer be. And he's sad about it and he's melancholy about it, but he knows that's the plan. That's how it's had to be. But remember, going all the way back to his childhood, they visited the temple every year. He taught in the temple when he was 12. Remember that story? He's got fond memories of the temple and to see it become just such a, it's just a marketplace now and nobody even really cares about it. It hurts him to his core. But here's the thing. The new way to righteousness with God is only possible through faith, which is why he goes back and he teaches about faith. They're pointing at the fig tree saying, look, it's withered. Just like Israel, Israel has withered. The temple, Jerusalem, is no longer what God intended it to be. But through faith, the temple now is in you. Remember that scripture? Let me, let me share them with you. Paul said it. Now, this is after Jesus, of course, after what we're talking about now in time. But Paul said it really well in two different scriptures. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17. He says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Did you hear that? The temple of God is holy and that is what you are. When he says the temple of God is holy, he's not talking about a building. He's talking about you are the temple of God. And then he writes to the Romans, Romans 3.22, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. So remember, the subtext of this whole thing is the Jews, God's chosen carriers of the covenant, had failed. They had failed to keep the temple holy. They had failed to keep his laws. Now, not all of them. There were some who spent every waking moment trying to keep the laws, but failing even then. But what they really did is that they failed to keep the temple sacred. Jesus came to offer the new covenant, not based on religion or on a building or on keeping rules, but on faith in him alone. So when you hear his response to look, the fig tree withered, substitute Jerusalem, the temple, Israel for the fig tree. Look, Israel has withered on the vine. And he says, through faith, Through faith, you can do anything. 
We no longer need the temple to be the holy of holies for God. The new covenant, if you don't remember, the new covenant is the promise that God makes with all of us that through Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and we can then have restored fellowship with him. Not separated by sin, direct fellowship with God through Jesus to everyone whose heart is turned towards him. Is that not amazing news? We don't need a temple. We don't need a building. It's good to keep the sun off of us. But the temple of God is in you. This building is a church. It's whether we, where we gather together. It is a blessing. It is amazing. But the temple of God, where his spirit resides, is in you. Is that amazing? Can you think about that? You are holy. The temple of God resides in you. Does that change the way you think about yourself? Does it change the way you think about the person sitting next to you? Because they're the same. Prayer from this point forward is the avenue that God uses for fellowship. And Jesus teaches them that right now. He goes into this. Mark 11, 24 to 26. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them. Remember, this is they're looking at this dead fig tree. They pointed out the fig tree, and Jesus teaches them all this. That's got to be a lot even for them to grab. Again, Mark 11, 24, 26. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you for your offenses. Verse 26, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your offenses. Ouch. So in order to pray and receive what you ask for, you have to first forgive anyone that you have offense with. That's hard. I want to tell you, though, that's not, that's a truth. That is not a formula, okay? He's not saying you have to do these things in this order. But what he's saying is when your heart aligns with God's heart, you can receive anything that you ask for. If your heart aligns with God's heart, you're not going to say, God, smite those who don't agree with me. God, that person that's in the hierarchy above me at work, that person stopping my promotion, just have them have a car crash on the way to work. That's not aligning with God's heart. But if your requests and your heart aligns with God's heart, whatever you ask for is going to align with what God wants for you, and that's why you will receive it. But if you can't forgive, he teaches on forgiveness there. And through our deliverance ministry, we talk about forgiveness a lot. Forgiveness is not a magic switch. You flip that, I forgive, flip, now you get everything that you need. What that means is if you can't forgive those who have offended you, then you can't possibly grasp what Jesus Christ has done for you. Because Jesus gave himself on the cross. God gave his one and only son for you to be brutally sacrificed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And if you can't grasp that and pay that forward to forgive those who have offended you, can you really even understand what Jesus did for you? That's the point of what he's teaching here. Now, again, we come to the end of a day. Jesus and his disciples leave again for the night. Mark 11, 27, 28. And they came again. They get up in the morning. They go back into Jerusalem. They came again to the Jerusalem and as he was walking to the temple area, now he's got a problem. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. So they're just waiting. He's going to be back tomorrow. They probably spent all night. We don't know from Scripture, but what would you do? Let's spend all night. Let's kind of huddle and powwow and come up with our bullet points. How are we going to attack this guy when he comes in? We've got to knock him down. We've got to discredit him in front of everybody. How are we going to do it? So probably... What they say next is the result of all their brainstorming all night long to come up with a plan. They confront him. When they came again to Jerusalem, as he was walking to the temple area, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? 
So they had confronted him boldly, publicly. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus say, ooh, you guys got me there, and walk away? He turns it into a teaching moment. Jesus says this, Mark eleven twenty nine. 29. I think we got it, yep. But Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus asks them a question that is going to force them into a corner. Mark eleven thirty. 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. That's a pretty straightforward question. These guys are, are priests, Pharisees, scribes, elders. They should know the answer to a simple question like that, wouldn't you think? Here's their genius answer. It's going to be heard by everybody present. Mark 11, 31, 32. And they began considering the implications among themselves, saying, so again, saying to themselves, if we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But should we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for they all considered John to have been a real prophet. So they can't win in that question. If they say it was from heaven, John the Baptist was from heaven, they have to then admit to everything John the Baptist said, which is Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That answers the authority question right there, doesn't it? But if they say he's from the people, now the people are going to be mad because all the people who they're trying to rein in and profit from all consider John the Baptist to be a prophet sent from God. They can't win. So here is their scholarly, well-thought-out answer. Mark eleven thirty three. 33. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither am I telling you by what authority I do these things. Even in that, we want to laugh at them for we do not know. But I will tell you, sometimes there's wisdom in just saying, we don't know. You don't always have to have the answer. But in this case, they, they have nothing to counter that. Knowing that they would refuse to acknowledge the truth anyway, no matter what they came up with, they weren't going to acknowledge publicly the truth. Jesus starts then, launches into, in chapter 12, starts teaching in parables, because they're not going to understand anyway. So he's teaching for those who have a heart to hear. Now, Pastor Gabe gets to teach next week. So when you come next week, she's going to launch into chapter 12 and teach you everything you ever wanted to know, no pressure, about Jesus' parables. All right, so let's recap. Let's wind this up. Let's wind this up and recap here. Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem to chants of Hosanna. Remember, Hosanna is save us. Save us. Secondly, Jesus leaves after one last look, one last kind of sad reminiscence of the temple that he used to know, saying, that is not the temple I used to know. The next day, he curses the fig tree for promising fruit, but not fulfilling that promise. You had everything you needed to bear fruit. You promised fruit, but there is no fruit there. He curses the fig tree. Then, returning to the temple in righteous anger to cleanse it of those who had profaned the temple. Then he stops and he teaches on the power of prayer, forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit. Right in the middle of all that. The temple had been profaned and it was no longer sacred, but that didn't matter because the temple of God, from that point forward, just a couple days later, was going to be within everyone who called on the name of Jesus. That's where the temple of God was going to be. So now let's revisit what Paul said about who you are in Christ. And this is where I want to get to the point of this whole message. We're almost there. Stay with me. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, Paul says this, writing to the church in Corinth, do you not know that you are a temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? Any ambiguity there whatsoever? Verse 17, if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Does that give you comfort or does that make you a little nervous? Are you living your life to reflect the fact that God says you are his temple now and that you are holy and you are special? And you are set apart. 
Because if you are doing the best that you can, and that's all we can all do is the best that we can, if you're living your life to glorify God and to reflect the holiness that he says you are, then that's exactly where we ought to be. That's why we're here. That's why I hope that you're all here is because we want to all walk together through this life, helping, encouraging one another to see who we are in Christ, to see who we were made to be and to live our lives according to that standard. But if you're sitting there and you're squirming in your chair going, I don't quite know, then I don't think you grasp that promise. Remember, this is a promise. The temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. You are a temple of God. The temple of God is holy. That is what you are. So the very final question that I have, do you think Jesus would have been okay if that in the temple, if the money changers and the people taking advantage of the pilgrims, if they had just said, look, we only do this on Tuesdays. Every other day, we're totally holy. Do you think it would have been okay with just a part-time desecration of the temple, part-time profaning and taking advantage of those who couldn't afford? I don't think so. I don't think so. All the time. We, the temple of God, you are the temple of God. If you call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, Scripture says you are his temple. His spirit resides in you. And you are holy because God says you are. Are we living our lives like that? I'm going to leave you with that. As we go into worship and as we take communion, I want to pray. But I just want you to seek the Holy Spirit. Now, some of us, Pastor Gabe talked about the led by the Spirit classes that are coming up. If you, maybe you've never spent time actually seeking and expecting to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking back to you. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you to think about that class. Because there is no power greater in this world, no power that could move mountains more than the power of the Holy Spirit in his people. And that's why he put his spirit in us. So if you don't think you're holy, if you don't think you're special, think again. You are holy because Jesus says you are. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that first of all, that you sent your son to die for us, to pay the price for our sins, to pay the price for every sin we have ever committed, every sin that we ever will commit. You sent him to take that punishment for us, that punishment that we deserve, he took so that we could be closer to you, so that we could have direct communion with you. Through prayer, we can speak to you. And right now, Lord, that is our prayer. Father God, show us. Show us those places where we have allowed the unholy to creep into our lives, the parts of our lives that maybe we're segmenting that aren't what you have for us. Those parts that we hide, that we think we're hiding from the world, you see them, and you forgive us anyway. But Lord, I just pray that we would all not leave this building today with the promise of bearing fruit, with the instruction on how to bear fruit, with your spirit in us to help us bear fruit and then go out into the world and not bear fruit. Lord, we don't want to be like a withered fig tree of no use for what you've created it to be. We don't want to be like the temple, no longer of any use for what you created it to be. Father, we want, we want to be who you created us to be. And that thing is a holy temple holy temple where you and your spirit live. Father God, we thank you and we praise you. Guide us this day and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to go into worship now. And as we do that, we're also going to take communion. We do uh, communion together every time we gather together. And so if you haven't done it with us before, all you have to do is declare Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You don't have to go through a class, be a member, do anything like that. 
but you're invited to take communion with us. We'll have two stations here. We'll have one here and one over here, and at these two front stations, we'll serve you. We have bread, gluten-free crackers, and wine, and the way that we do it here is you just dip into the wine and take it like that. And at the station over here, if you don't want wine, we have juice, and the same thing, bread and crackers over there. You could serve yourself. And what we'll do, we're still trying to get used to the flow. Let's just come to the middle and come down like this, and then back to your seats. I think the flow will work. But let's do this. Scripture says, do this in remembrance of me. Do we just remember what he did, or do we celebrate what he did? I think taking communion together, every single time we do this, we say yes to his offer of salvation. We say yes to his task of making disciples of all nations. We say yes to the things that he intended us to be, and that's something higher. That's something holy and special and set apart. And so each time we take communion, we're saying, yes, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that through that, we can now be everything that you have called us to be. And I reaffirm my commitment to live my life that way. That's the way I look at communion. His body broken, his blood shed for you to keep you holy. That's something to be thankful for. Amen. Worship team, you guys can come on up. And when you're ready, you can just stay in your seats and pray if you want. And when you are ready, you can start moving about and take communion and just enjoy worship with us. Thank you, guys.